When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. everybody to pick a flick the show where you pick a film we watch it simple as that i'm tony black your host and i'm joined for more flick picking today with uh, two esteemed podcasters and uh, fellow gentlemen firstly may i uh, introduce dave bond hello dave your uh, second or third time on the podcast uh third time on pick a flick that's right you're a suck of a punishment yeah Joining us for the first time on Pick a Flick, it's Fail Critic's own Owen Hughes. Hello. Yeah, it feels weird that this is the first one of Pick a Flick that I've been on. It feels like I should have been on sooner. I don't know why I... Uh... You're an in-demand man, Owen, clearly. <laughs> okay, today we are back with two nominated films, as ever, uh, that we're going to pick through. And today we've got some extremely niche and unusual choices, so... Let's um, start as we mean to go on. Let's pick a flick. Masters of the Universe is a 1987 American science fantasy action film directed by Gary Goddard. Yes, that Gary Goddard. And stars <laughs> and stars Dolph Lundgren, Frank Langella, John Seifer, Chelsea Field, Billy Barty and... Yes, Courtney Cox. It is based on the Mattel toy line of the same name. The film was released theatrically in the United States on August the 7th, 1987, and was a critical and commercial failure. It uh, revolves around He-Man, who has the power in his attempts to protect Castle Grayskull and the planet Eternia from the evil Skeletor. Here's a clip before I become even more of a pantomime dame. People of Eternia, I stand before the great eye of the galaxy, chosen by destiny to receive the powers of Grayskull. This inevitable moment will transpire before your eyes, even as He-Man himself bears witness to it. All open. Now, I... 
Skeletor. And master of the universe. Yes! Masters of the Universe was a uh, original draft script by a man named David O'Dell, who previously wrote Supergirl and the Dark Crystal. So we're talking some very eighties fare here. The Dark Crystal's great, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I won't have a bad word said about the Dark Crystal. We uh, there'll be plenty of bad words about Masters of the Universe, but Dark Crystal's a, it's a good script for a little fantasy Jim Henson film. Well, yeah, and it's it, it's you know got some good memories in people's minds and it has some a certain element of fondness unlike masters of the universe so yeah a lot of nostalgia that's perhaps not there for this this film yeah owen then what did you think then of this <laughs> classic in inverted commas <laughs> well <laughs> i actually rewatched it a couple years ago I don't know why. I think I was just on like a binge of Dolph Lundgren films, which is not a good binge. That's to a go strange on, binge. It does not turn up too many uh, corkers. But the, yeah, Masters of the Universe, it was when I was a kid. It was when I watched it a few years ago, and it still is now. Just a complete and utter pile of shit. There's, <laughs> there, there are no redeeming factors to this film. I think you can watch it and try and make sense of the story if you like. You can have a lot of fun trying to work out what the actual plot is. But it's just gibberish, isn't it? The dialogue doesn't make a lick of sense. It's all complete and utter gibberish and bobbins. It, it, bo- just... Bobbins was the word I was thinking of, actually. That, that so, yeah, that immediately popped into my head. It's bobbins. It's bobbins, yeah. But I think it's... I was surprised at how entertained in t- in, in the on the bobbins scale I was. In the way that a bad film is quite entertaining to watch, I'll give you. Sometimes it's quite fun to see how much of a, a complete clusterfuck some of the scenes turn out to be. Okay, there are some fun things in there. Frank Langella, for example, the Skeletor, yeah. is doing his best to chew the scenery through the mask that doesn't actually allow him to move his mouth very much at all. <laughs> it looked like a fancy, fancy dress c- costume because it, they didn't really sort of cover enough of his eyes No, <laughs> to tell you that wasn't a man underneath. Of course it's a man underneath, we accept that. I mean, I, what, what interested me about the film was two or three things. Firstly, I hadn't heard of... I mean, there's several things that interested me as we go through. But firstly, I hadn't heard of the director. You've not heard of Gary Goddard? 
No, I the Gary Goddard. Goddard. The Gary the Goddard. The Gary Goddard, yes. I'm stunned. Um, I called him up and it's, I thought I'd got the wrong guy because <laughs> I went to the Wikipedia page and it said he's the CEO of... Well, you don't really want that for your filmmakers, do you? I mean, even George <laughs> Lucas, it wouldn't have said he's the CEO of Lucasfilm. It wouldn't have, But it was definitely the same guy. So it, it's just very typical. It's very typical canon films. Yeah, definitely. And what really surprised me about it, and it's that specifically that era canon films, because you can find things in their filmography like A Cry in the Dark, which isn't bad at all. But they had this sort of stack it high mentality. They were running out of money at this point this stage and this is the same year and not far off the same month Superman 4 The Quest for Peace was released yeah. same studio uh, 38 million budget slashed to 17 at the last minute because they were in trouble with this film I just thought that the budget for this can't have exceeded 5 or 6 and when I looked at it amazingly it had a 22 million dollar budget so this is more expensive than Superman 4 but it, it's aping it even the credits are like the rainbow bright version of mm. Superman 4, Superman's credits, the cheapy sort of Superman 4 version. Nothing's explained. It reminds me of Supergirl in that respect. That, you know, it just, ah, oh, it just is. That'll do. This sort of stack it high mentality. And whilst there's, there's more we'll talk about as we go through, because I saw it in the cinema. Actually, really? About, yeah, yeah. Wow. I, saw it as a t- I was born in late 76, so I mean, I, I, was, I was 10 years old when this was released. Now, I'm a he- I was a He Man fan. I can remember when the cartoon was launched. I can remember the presenter of Children's ITV saying, the moment you've all been waiting for. Wow. Until preparing for this podcast, I'd not seen it since cinema. Watching this performance really actually reminds you that Arnold Schwarzenegger has some talent. Not a particularly good actor, neither is Dolph Lundgren, but he has no screen presence. He's completely sidelined in his own film. Yeah. And it's very difficult to pay any real attention to him. He just has no screen presence. Well, well, that, well that's something that I immediately picked up on, in that the, the amount of times that He-Man isn't even on screen, it, and in, it is because Dolph Lundgren, obviously, has very, very limited ability, and they knew that. They just hired a big lunk. In fact, apparently he hated this experience filming it. They skewered it much more towards the hammy pantomime performances of the of the proper actors in the film and that's why Frank Langella is so good and I, I really every time Skeletor was on screen it was so much better a film I enjoy him quite unironically yeah in this. yes he's, yeah. he's, he's fine but it's a thing with canon films in the era that they, they would always they were big on hyping themselves I mean they talked mm. about this as the 80s Star Wars I mean you can only imagine a 10 year old going in you don't understand budgets and technological restrictions and so on there's no adam there's not really any eternia there's no cringer or battle cat and you've got everybody dressed in sort of vague approximations of the cartoons outfits kind of in a cosplay sense and they're in like pharmacists and things like that and and it looks really strange and as a 10 year old I barely made it through this film well I think that was the other thing about it wasn't it because I saw it when Mm. I was a kid and you didn't really want to see He-Man with some real life you know humans on planet Earth that wasn't the point of He-Man the point of He-Man was he fought weird crazy monster blokes it saves you money in set building, doesn't it? That, that's exactly. the whole point. That's canon films all over. Well, have you seen Electric Boogaloo, the documentary? No, I haven't. Is that about canon films? That's about canon, yeah. Miralem and uh, Which means they did the breakdance films as well, then, did they? They break it. They did break it. But they also did Over the Top. I know they did Over the Top, yeah. They did Cobra too. Yeah, they did. Over the Top was the, the film that kind of nearly broke them, because they were very much of the opinion that build it and they will come. So they used to just throw money at actors to get them into, 
into their films. So that's where a lot of their budget would go. Well, I would imagine with Over the Top, they probably thought they were making another Rocky stroke Karate Kid. Precisely. Um, but you've got 1986 Sylvester Stallone cost, not mm-hmm. 1976 Sylvester Stallone cost. But, well, it was a new Hollywood record when they bought Sylvester Stallone. But one of my favourite things that they talk about in Electric Boogaloo is the making of Masters of the Universe at one point. And they say how Sylvester Stallone just wandered onto, onto the set during the filming of Masters of the Universe and turned to them and said, you gave that guy lines? As in, like, you gave Dolph Lundgren things well, to say. Well, part of that would have been <laughs> fun as well. I mean, because he started in Rocky Four with him. Exactly, yeah. But, I mean, I, I don't know what you think, Tony. I mean, you, you said about the enjoyability of, of Frank Langella. The, the rest of it's kind of a bit of a joke, really, isn't it? Well, it, it is. But, and I confess, I for some reason, I didn't watch this when I was a kid. I was only, I was five when it came out. So you'd think that I would have I watched this, but I'd never seen it, that's, strangely. That's no excuse, Tony. I was one when it came out. <laughs> it's true. I really don't know. He was, he'd already matured way past it. By that point. <laughs> Did you also notice uh, Robert Duncan and Nick? Maguire? Yeah, you didn't. You didn't mention him in the, the credits. Uh, the future Tom Paris from Voyager. That's right. For, I didn't mention him. I should have done. Yeah, he, he, he's a main character in it, isn't he? I just found it to be quite fun in a way that it, it just felt like it knew how daft it all was. Nobody told the good guys though, Tony. <laughs> well, Nobody true. told the attorney and good guys. Frank Langella knew. Courtney Cox and Robert Duncan McNeil are trying really hard, but at that point they're young actors. They're trying to make their name, and who knows at the point of filming it could be a big hit. Well, this studio made a Superman film this year. At this point, they don't know what's going to be mm. released. But nobody told He-Man, you know, Teela, Man at Arms. They are taking it absurdly seriously. And again, it, it, it's like having a deep conversation about life, the universe, and everything while sat in a shut pharmacist uh, <laughs> with a load of people from a cosplay convention. No, no, I, I do agree. I do agree. And they, it was at the point where the villains were having more fun than the good guys. And the good guys were meant to be, you know, quite straight and boring. And yeah, the good guys are, you know, no, nobody would look, leave, leave this film fascinated by He-Man or anything they you know but the, and the, but this is why Frank Langella was having such fun it was also that his four-year-old son at the time loved Skeletor so he'd run around the house yelling I have the power and that's why he chose to play play the character a bit like Raul Julio in his last role before yes, he died yeah. did with M. Bison but it's that whole thing that and like like Raul Julia that they're, they're two examples of being in quite shit films and it's interesting how the guy who nominated this film for today, loves Street Fighter as well, and you can see the comparisons to an extent because they are absolute messes. But at the same time, they are there are parts of each of them that know exactly how daft they are, and Masters of the Universe does. It just unfortunately doesn't have any semblance of logic or plot, and quite honestly, from what I remember of He Man, doesn't actually really do the character or the franchise justice, which is why. There was no part of why there was no sequel. Well, part of the reason would have been, uh, I mean, there was supposed to be a Superman five as well, and you know the, the studio were in desperately desperate trouble. Uh, but we all grow up at different times. Obviously, we're all born. We all reach different ages at different times. So, I, I'm not going to knock anyone who's who really loves this film. If you go back through the stuff I loved as a child. There's going to be stuff that probably wasn't that great. At 10, I'm still a child, I'm still very young, but I'm just starting to develop enough critical faculties that not everything's amazing. And that's the thing, you if you don't see it at that age, you're going to have a different opinion on it, like a lot of these films, as to when you did see it at that age. And as somebody who watched this when he's 33, as somebody who you know gets an enjoyment out of 
silly action films and silly spectacle. So I just, I, th- I think I came at this without any cynicism. And I'm, I'm not saying it, it, nobody else, you know, would come at it with cynicism. I'm saying I think the best way to enjoy this is to just take it for the silly load of nonsense it is, really. I agree, but part of the problem with canon films in general is they can't deliver on the promises. And Superman 4, and I know you've covered it on Pick and Flick, so obviously regular subscribers won't want to hear me go over that again too much. But half the problem with the film wasn't was, was that like most of it's not done very well. There's not an awful lot of good action in this. And even quite near the end, where you know He-Man does get into a few scrapes, it, it's all shot a bit flat. I'm, I was amazed there was a $22 million budget, which wasn't exactly lavish. But it does look a lot lower budget than that. There were some sets, though, that I thought looked quite good. I mean, the, the Skeletor's base, I thought, actually looked... I remember th- Actually, that's quite a large base, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I remember thinking when, when he first walks in at the very beginning, you know, there's a very theatrical entrance. I, think, I was thinking, this, that's quite a good set, you know, and obviously they use it a fair bit in the film. So I think a lot of the budget probably went on that, and that's one of the reasons, like has been said earlier, they set the film in a very, very 1980s Earth. And it's it's that whole thing of how there were quite a few films around that time. I mean, The Voyage Home, Star Trek Four, is, is another example of, to save money, partly, they set it in an extremely 1980s <laughs> San Francisco. And it means that they date. I mean, you know, there are parts, obviously, Masters of the Universe has dated horribly because it's, it's so 1980s. Yeah, imagine finding a synth <laughs> in the middle of a graveyard. Right? <laughs> it's mental, isn't it? I mean, that whole thing, that cosmic key or whatever it's called, that's also... It's a synth, it's, obviously. I love it's the thing. 80s. <laughs> I love that thing in 80s films where any time anybody approaching top of the bill, any time they do anything musical, everyone around them is just wildly impressed. It actually <laughs> reminds me of, like, George Formby back in the 30s. He would like, pick up his banjo and sing any old fucking bollocks. And anyone listening to it would be absolutely delighted. And it's a little bit like that. He picks up that. Yeah, he's in the sort of sort of hall with the band, and he plays a bit of the synth. And it's kind of a tuneless fucking nothing. <laughs> and Courtney <laughs> Cox is fucking creaming herself. <laughs> and uh, it, it really is. It, that's a bit of an eighties trope as well. I've I've now got images of of George Formby singing a song with a synth called "Any Old Fucking Bollocks." <laughs> I don't really any old fucking bollocks. I really want that. When I'm cleaning bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it is, you know, very rooted in its time and, and completely daft. But I think like you know, like like you've mentioned, Dave, I think the more interesting facts about this film is less the actual movie itself and more the stuff around the movie really and the you know, the Canon films story and everything like that. Hmm. And like you said, you know, they wanted to create they intended to create a sequel. And it's got it's a rare example of quite an early end credit sequence as well, hasn't it? At the very end, you see Skeletor yes. is actually alive. And, I mean, that, that's the thing. It, it's so the Emperor, isn't it? I mean, even how he dies is exactly yeah. the same as how the Emperor dies in Return of the Jedi. It's the only thing is here. Imagine if there was a post credit sequence where the Emperor turns out to be alive at the end of Jedi. So it's like you can tell that they were they were planning for a future that didn't happen. And then there's some interesting stuff about how that project was meant to be back-to-back with an aborted Spider-Man film that they were that they were planning to do, which would have been fascinatingly terrible. Yeah, with the guy it? from uh, American Ninja. But, the, you know, that's the thing about canon, though. You know, we're talking about the sequels. All of their films were originally supposed to have sequels. They would generate the money by creating posters and ideas for films, almost on the spot. And going around places like Sundance and Cannes and getting investment from yeah. people. 
and then blowing that money on films they were still currently making because they couldn't really afford to be making those films. And we're still in an era as well where the name sells the film. Yeah. That, that's mm. not so true now. I mean, there's always been exceptions. I mean, Star Wars didn't have a big name in it at the time. But we're still in an era where you try to open a film with Eddie Murphy or whoever. Yeah. And Dolph Lundgren, Rocky Four was popular. You know, Courtney Cox was strangely a little bit iconic off that Bruce Springsteen video. And I can sort of see the problem you've got with anything like Masters of the Universe. It's put the cart before the horse because you, you would like to spin off some merchandising off this. But it's already been done by Mattel. <laughs> yeah. There's there's no extra money to be made out of this. You know, that's that's the other side of it. You know, the fact that it, it is a toy and it's it's in an era where... And beyond that, where kids were having toys a lot more and, you know, they were starting to adapt these things. There has been talk of a reboot ever since as well, uh, which most recently actually... It got really close three or four years ago. It did. There was one being developed in 2007 by John Woo. I would love to see that, to be honest. Yeah, can you imagine that? It was never officially greenlit and then the rights report uh, went back to Mattel. After that, Sony took over the rights to produce the adaptation after Mattel and Joel Silver couldn't agree on a direction so there were a few people who became involved but it never really went anywhere John M. Chu was in talks to direct at the end of 2012 and there was talks about Lundgren coming back in, in a possible role as King Randor that was probably the one that got closest to actually happening though like you said Dave but most recently it Chris Yost has been hired to write the film Chris Yost, having written what? He's a comics book writer, isn't he? Yeah, he's a comic book writer. So he's um, he's done things like The Avengers. Well, he's done loads of, of stuff. And he wrote um, Thor The Dark World, which isn't a particularly glowing thing on your resume, but there's nothing to say that he won't do better this, with this. But there's no director attached. So it is, it is more than likely that at some point we will get another He-Man film. I think the problem is at the moment, who is it for? Well, yeah. yeah sometimes these creators, they get to sort of my age, where they they are at the peak of their powers, and they make things based on what they like. Who's Masters of the Universe for now. Yeah. It was massive from about 1983 onwards for about three or four years. Kids haven't got a clue who it is. If you treat it almost like it's a brand new idea, then why not? But I'd be sceptical that there's a massive inbuilt audience. If they do choose to do it, it'll be a very, very different beast. And like you say, it'll be completely reimagined for a whole new audience. But I think it's an interesting film to watch and I would recommend anyone check it out just to see because it is certainly not among the worst of the cheesy bad 80s films. So no, uh, there's far worse. There are a lot worse. This was nominated by Lee Crimes who is uh, a good friend of mine and he is a uh, on Twitter at Lee underscore A underscore Crimes and he calls himself a writer, musician, geek and bald asshole. And I can confirm he's definitely the last one. He's got a bold asshole. He's a bold asshole, yeah. He, he is. Um, he's watched too much Curb Your Enthusiasm, that's why he puts that. He also has a uh, another Twitter called Zero Geek, Zero underscore Geek, which uh, is where he just posts interesting things about gaming and everything like that, because he's a big gamer. And he also has a website called MZP TV, which is all to do with writing and screenwriting and I've been involved in that for 10 years as well it's a great place so please do check them out and give Lee a follow so thanks for the nomination Lee yeah cheers (laughs) yeah cheers I'm I'm fucking delighted (laughs) next we're going to move on quite logically from He-Man to um, talk about films that are based on toys because there is an interesting sub-genre here of movies that have come from toy brands. And beginning in the late 1970s, 
films began to appear based on popular toys, which until then had followed films as related merchandise, so it was a case of flipping it round. In 1977, Raggedy Ann and Andy, a musical adventure, debuted as the first theatrical motion picture in which a consumer toy was the star. And then during the 1980s, such films as Masters of the Universe, as we've talked about, action figures like He-Man got their own films. So there were films such as The Care Bears, which was uh, obviously a big thing when from the 80s. Properties such as Rainbow Bright, which was a Hallmark Cards animated series, and My Little Pony as well. And obviously, the big one was Transformers, which obviously has then since gone on to dominate this in the modern day. I've got a list here of all the live-action films based on toys, but are there any from either of you gentlemen that you can that you want to talk about or you want to mention based on this? Well, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one, I know it was a comic first, but the film only came about because of how well the TV, uh, the, the toys and then the, the cartoon did, really. Mm. And it, it genuinely is a good film, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. A lot of heart went into that. Are these the 1990-like one, the, the original yeah. live action? When it got really big again, I was about 13, something like that, and I was just slightly too old for it. Pe- people like, I, you know, stepbrothers and things like that, people I know who were like three, four years younger than me adored it. I, yeah, I used to absolutely love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or Hero Turtles, whatever they were in, in the UK. Any, any Americans listening, you wouldn't believe it. that we were, we, uh, They thought we'd be corrupted by the word ninja. And nunchucks. They censored out Michelangelo's nunchucks. But in the in the film, it was it was it's actually quite a dark story if you look look at it. You know, it's all about abandonment. Well, the fact that there's ninjas that go around killing and stuff. You know, it's it's pretty pretty full on. There's like a cult element to it because you get all these homeless kids and orphaned kids who are swept up in this this cult by a sort of shadowy figure. It's actually quite a dark story for what is essentially a kid's film. But it's really good. All the puppetry in it is just fantastic because it's all Jim Henson stuff. It just looks amazing. Even the facial expressions, the the manoeuvrability of the, the, the guys playing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in that is just, like, astonishing. You wouldn't think some of the acrobatic scenes they they get up to would be possible. You'd think it'd be really restrictive in those suits, especially because not too long before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out, you had Batman, and he couldn't even move his head. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it it just works. It's it's actually quite fun as well, but mainly because a lot of thought and care went into making the story. Uh, There was a lot of input from Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman the guys who who wrote the original comic, so there's a lot lot that's there to to make it feel like it's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There's a great documentary about it as well called well, it's a good documentary. Great is perhaps overstating it. <laughs> called Turtle Power, which sort of charts the history. It's worth a watch, but if you've got any interest in this kind of nostalgic look back at the the craze, it's easy to be sniffy when you're 13, 14, and think you've outgrown that sort of thing. <laughs> Yeah. So in in respect that they're teenage and mutants, they are outsiders. So is the appeal really any different from X-Men, where they're outsiders, or Spider-Man, where he's a teenager with all the teenage angst that comes with that? I think what toys offer, and toy series like that, is is a real opportunity for like new IPs, new new ideas, because we're, we're still sat talking about remaking lots of things, and you know, the Turtles are the only thing I can think of in recent years with the possible exception of 
possibly, I suppose, Jurassic Park, because that's an ongoing thing. But it, I mean, even the uh, most of the Marvel properties come from before that. There aren't that many new IPs from recent years that are sort of ongoing concerns. The only thing Turtle-related I've ever seen is the reboot last year. Oh, God. Well, I didn't expect massive amounts because it was produced by Michael Bay, but at the same time, I just felt like it was a corner of our culture I was missing. Because I was just the wrong age when it came out. I was just a little bit too fucking sniffy about these things. And I didn't go in with massive ideas that it was going to be great. I went in that, like, what's this about then? That's all it was. It was It was almost a bit academic. And I don't mean I was sat there making notes and <laughs> analysing it. I literally just mean that, like... This is just to broaden my knowledge a little bit about, like, what's the tur- what are the turtles even about? Because I've never read or followed any of it. Well, Turtle Power will definitely give you that background history. It'll give you the idea of how just how big a craze it was and how much it kind of meant to a, a huge uh, group of fans. I guess, Owen, the point is not that I, I understand how big a craze it was. I think what I'm missing is why. And, I, and, and something like that might help me. But I think that comes down to, again the age you were like you said like you said Dave I think there are certain things where I mean an example perhaps would be the people who probably got the angriest about the Transformers films being rebooted were the people maybe who grew up playing with those toys in the 80s watched the animated Transformers movie which is beloved by lots of people and whereas me I, I think I think I bypassed a certain like childhood because I don't remember Playing with a lot of these things or no, watching a lot either. of these things. I'm the right age for Transformers because you're talking mid-80s. Well, I yeah. all about that and I wasn't. Exactly. Well, well, and that's interesting. I mean, I remember having a He-Man. I was, if I'm honest... Oh, I, I loved in- He-Man. Oh, yeah. I, I had a He-Man. I was, but I was more int- into wrestling, I think, when I was a kid. But it mm. was... It, it, there were certain things that bypassed me. And I think the point is, the reason I don't care either way about Transformers, quite frankly, is because I didn't grow up with it. Whereas Lee, who I just mentioned, Lee Crimes... He has a real love-hate relationship with those Transformers films, the Michael Bay films. Because on the one hand, he despises what they what they what they are, but on the other hand, he he gets almost orgasmic. You know, it's like it's like if they made another Indiana Jones films, nothing to do with toys, but I'd be first in line. I expect nothing from it, but I couldn't miss it. Right, or or like you with Bond and me with Bond. Oh, absolutely, and and I think you know even uh, statistics, you know, by the. By the law of averages, you know, but somewhere before I die, there'll be a Bond I don't like. So that means every two to three years, there'll be a film coming out from an actor I think's all wrong for it, and I'll still be like first in line. But you're, yeah, and you'll care either way. And I think that's. I think the thing with um, Transformers is, I mean, just in terms of the film, well, the toys never had any effect on me at all. I, I wasn't interested in, oh, you turn. I always think of that scene from Big, where he says, well, what's fun about playing with a building? Well, that's true of any fucking transformer for me. Oh, it's a car. Oh, it's not now. Brilliant. You know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just not that interested. I, you know, I was, I don't, don't do know, their PR. I don't really care. In terms of, of of toys and films, I wasn't a big toy kid anyway. The only the only real one is for me was He Man, and and they no disrespect if you liked it, but in terms of any kind of even remotely faithful transfer transfer to the big screen, they didn't really do it. So, and I can't think of many others that would have been aimed in any way at us because you talk about Rainbow Bright and Care Bears and all the rest of it, and and My Little Pony, and most of them strike me as aimed at girls. What about, what about you, Owen? Were you were you much of a toy person growing up? Definitely, yeah. I collected loads of action figures. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned wrestling as well because I was also really big into wrestling, and part of that popularity came 
from the toys. Yeah, you know, because, same with uh, me. Because, yeah, I just would like to collect them and I'd yeah. then find out about who the wrestler was based on the toy yeah. that I had, you know? Yeah, same for me. Yeah, I had Transformers. I love Transformers. I can remember begging my dad in Toys R Us to buy me some Transformer or other. He's <laughs> like, no, it's going to break as soon as we get out of the shop. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I really, I desperately want it. It's my favourite toy. And then we bought it. And then it broke in the car on the way home. Oh, I, yeah. Listen to dad. Yeah, it should have listened to Dad. But I had all the toys for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for Ghostbusters, you know, yeah, that was also big yeah. for the toys. He-Man toys, even though, you know, it was a bit before my time, but I still still like collecting the figures. I was massively into action figures, yeah. But, you know, the flip side of that is I, I don't really give two shits about the films. I was a bit aggrieved when I went to the cinema to see the first Michael Bay Transformers film and I thought mm, this isn't what I thought it was when you go back and watch the old cartoons now or you watch the the film the animated films from 1986 and you go yeah but the, the cartoon wasn't all that either really mm, yeah it kills a lot of the nostalgia dead the problem with toy movies is exactly the same as the problem with video game movies you know people people have sometimes said I've got friends who've said oh video games just don't transfer or they're always rubbish, and I think, well, no, that the problem isn't the fact that it's a video game. The problem is the talent level of what you're hiring to do it. Comic books have now reached the point. Christopher Nolan has made comic book films. Sam Mendes, an Oscar winner, has made Bond films. We haven't quite got there with, like, video games and toys yet. You know, the guy who made He-Man, the first film we talked about tonight, is CEO of something. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Or he's he's my he's my head of sixth form because he was called Gary Goddard as well. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Um, I'll be very interested to see how the Assassin's Creed film turns out. Because, yes, it's a video game, but... That could have been a toy line. That could have been anything. Well, it well, it, it is a toy line now because you, well, you can you can collect the assassins. And this is this is the interesting thing. I, you, I think quite often the, the films that are actually critically better are the ones that may have gone on and spawned toys as opposed to the other way around. Like Ghostbusters spawned the toys. The toys didn't come first. The, the film came first because there's no story there. That's the problem but with He Man. It, it, it's a concept. That's all it is. Yeah. 
Ghostbusters, the film came first, the idea, an idea was pitched. Whereas, you know, well, this is a good looking toy, what can we make out of it? Merchandising isn't new, it wasn't new then. Mm. You know, even things like Pixar now make so much money through merchandising. Something like Cars, for yeah. example. You know, half the money it makes is from all the toys and lunch boxes and kids' clothes it sells. Well, that's why you got Cars too, because Cars wasn't one of the more successful Pixar films at all, critically or commercially. Crucially, though, this isn't all um, all actually action figures as well. There are other examples of films that are based on different kinds of toys. So you've got things like Battleship, which is obviously based on the uh, <laughs> on the game. You've also got. Clue, which came from Cluedo, which was mid-80s. Dungeons and Dragons as well had a very, very unsuccessful film translation in the year 2000. It was almost forgotten. And, you know, the the equivalent you're going to get of that now is next year, it's Warcraft from uh, Duncan Jones, which will be like a modern version of that. Well, I suppose you're saying, we're talking about video games and toys as though they're completely separate things. Well, what is a video game if not something to play with for a bit? Well, exactly. The definition can be fairly can be fairly open, so that's why it doesn't always. I mean, Mars Attacks was another one that was actually more of a card game. Oh yeah, of course it was. Yeah, yeah and I, I mean personally, I I know it's not an amazing film critically, but I love Mars Attacks because I, I it was I was fourteen when it came out, and I've got a huge soft spot for that film. As does Matt Latham because he he mentioned it when the um, the pe- when I, when I put the question out to Twitter and Facebook what people thought and I'll get to that in a minute he mentioned Mars Attacks so it's so there are different kinds of um, films even Ouija boards yes uh, Witch Board from 1986 right yeah which Witch Board too the Devil's Doorway and and most recently Ouija last year now I mean. You know, we could you could get into a long debate over over a Ouija board and exactly how dangerous that might be as a toy or how not how it's a load of old shit. But you know, the point is that that's considered a toy. So you've got a lot of live action films and even more animated films because there have been even more animated movies made than live action films based on toys. There's tons of them, and everything from Lego to Hot Wheels to uh, you know GI Joe. I know that was a uh, live action as well. So there's been a lot based on all kinds of different. There's a lot. There's even one for Gonks. <laughs> Next year, really? there is a film called Trolls, which is going to be based on the, what we know in England as the Gonk. So this is, this is how far it goes. But I guess you could even stretch it to stuff like you know, because we were talking about video games as well. But like Pokemon had yeah, a yeah. huge amount of money poured into that movie in Japan. It was something ridiculous, like thirty million quid, plus all of the merchandise that followed from that. Because you know, most people probably don't think of Pokemon these days as the video game. No, no, more than you know, if, not. You, if you ask a parent what's Pokemon, are they likely to say it's that thing from 1996 that was on the Game Boy, <laughs> or are they more likely to say it's that cartoon with Pikachu in it? Right, exactly. You know, it, As I say, we've had a few um, suggestions by people on uh, on Twitter and Facebook. We had Whist Podcast at Whist Show. They kind of not got the wrong end of the stick, but kind of suggested different kinds of films. They suggested films that are about toys. So there is the <laughs> film. <laughs> There is the film Toys with uh, Robin Williams and Michael Gambon, which was also um, suggested by Rebecca Andrews as well on Facebook. They said Problem Child, Puppet Master and Toy Soldiers, um, although they said they were all contenders for the worst um, film about, films about toys. Toy Story, obviously, they said is likely the best. And Matt Latham said, said similar, you know, talking about... Um, Toy Story and things. He also said because he's a because he's a smart ass. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Very good, Latham. I think it's an interesting subgenre though of films that you know we'll see no sign of of decreasing, and it will you'll have films that spawn toys like we'll have 
you know, Force Awakens will spawn like an entire legion, already has spawned a legion of toys. And there'll be more properties that, you know, no doubt will um, will reappear, such as the He-Man film when we eventually get it. So it's interesting, but unfortunately we're all a bit too old now to go and play with toys, aren't we? I've got Amiibos. I've got two Amiibos if they count. Oh, well, sorted. You're, you're happy then. <laughs> okay, next up, we're going to dive back into um, one of the picked flicks. And uh, we're moving away from toys now. And we're moving away from most things because the next nomination is probably among the strangest we've had yet. And we've covered the room. Okay, so it's time to pick a flick. Zardoz is a 1974 science fiction movie written, produced, and directed by John Borman. It stars Sean Connery, Charlotte Rampling, and Sarah Kestelman. Zardoz was Connery's second post-James Bond role after The Offence. The film was shot by cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth on a budget of $1.57 million, and Borman was inspired to write Zardoz while preparing to adapt Lord of the Rings for United Artists, but... When the studio became hesitant about the cost of producing film versions of Tolkien's books, Borman continued to be interested in the idea of inventing a strange new world, and invent one he did. Here's a clip. Zardoz speaks to you, his chosen ones. You have been raised up from brutality to kill the brutals who multiply. And our legion, to this end, Zardoz, your god, gave you the gift of the gun. The gun is good. The penis is evil. The penis shoots seeds and makes new life to poison the earth with a plague of men, as once it was. But the gun shoots death and purifies the earth of the filth of brutals. Go forth and kill. Zardoz has spoken. Financed by 20th Century Fox and produced by Borman's own company, Zardoz was filmed between May and August 1973 in Ireland and on location in County Wicklow. And originally, Burt Reynolds was cast in the lead role because he'd just worked with Borman on Deliverance the pre- a couple of years before, but he had to pull out due to overscheduling and was replaced by Connery. And it was even reported that Stanley Kubrick was an uncredited technical advisor on the film. Now, none of those facts after watching Zardoz remotely surprised me for various different reasons because Borman was obviously doing well enough that he was allowed to do any old shit I think and I think that's the only reason that Zardoz got made it's a bit odd isn't it yeah. <laughs> I, I can't think of a film I mean I'm pretty silly literate but I, I don't often have to switch a film off and then go and read Wikipedia to see if what I saw is what I thought I saw <laughs> and, and that's basically what happened I was thinking did I understand that correctly and it turns out I did but I've watched the second half of it twice just to be absolutely sure (laughs) it's one of those films that you just think well like am I getting it and and the chances are you are but it's it's a very very strange film to me it's the price you pay for a decade like the 70s 
you know, because, <laughs> because if you want an apocalypse now, or, uh, I mean, I don't mean to pick two war films, but Deer Hunter or anything like that, there's a degree of experimentation in those things. Certainly in some of them, almost a hint of drugs, to say the least. And if you're going to experiment, not every experiment's going to work. So I feel about this film the way I feel about an awful lot of the Wachowski films. In that, like, mm. it's shit, but keep giving these people money. Keep giving the Wachowskis money, because they fail, but they fail with style. And I'd, I'd rather have that than some something bland. This film's not very good, to say the least. It's barely coherent. But... If you're going to fail, fail with some style. And this is the flip side of a decade that gave us some of the best cinema the Western world ever did. It's certainly memorable, isn't it? Alone for the fact that Sean Connery spends the whole thing in a red nappy. It, <laughs> and and with, with, a, with a ponytail. Ironically, for a film that's set like in 250, 300 years in the future, it's extremely of its, of its time. And it's packed with ideas. I mean, I'll give it that. It's got It's got a hell of a lot of ideas about society and immortality and it needed to be on tv because there's an awful lot of world building and yeah there is there mm. is actually mm. and it, it's it surprises you really when you think about it and you know if you get past all the layers of pretentious arty hippie bullshit that the film's made up of and the fact that connery's just having way too much fun being almost monosyllabic and i was gonna say do you think he's having fun i, th- I think he comes across like he's drugged well, well maybe <laughs> he, he comes off as sedated I kept, I kept wondering actually because I mean you obviously you know you 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 do a podcast about James Bond but mm. he, he made a deal with Diamonds Are Forever which was the you know a couple of years before this that he would get financed for like two a couple or two two mm. of the films I kept thinking all the way through is this one of the films he wanted no, to do it? No, they only did one of those two and that oh, okay. one is the offense. Is the offense because I, I kept yeah. thinking why on earth would you would you make the deal that I will play James Bond again but you've got to make Zardoz? I mean that's mad. But the guys just made Deliverance, which was a big hit. And yeah, made it, some other well, yeah. things. But in terms of his better known stuff, you know, it, the guy was like popular and successful at this point. Jeffrey Unsworth shot two thousand and one. It was one of the most beautiful yeah. films ever filmed. Actually, when I, I I think now I can spot Jeffrey Unsworth when I see him. There is definitely a dreamlike quality to this, and I can see the same cinematographer who did Superman the movie and who did 2001. So if you're Sean Connery and you are sick of James Bond because it's so formulaic, you can understand how he might overcorrect and do something a bit more yeah. experimental and anti-establishment. And the thing is, it might turn out amazing. This didn't, but... I, I'm not going to knock anyone for this because, like, if you're going to fail, fail with some ambition. I was just about to say I kind of thought it was interesting. I, I was I'm not hooked. saying it's not interesting, but it's not good. It depends how you mean good, really. Is is good really a subjective term? I mean, this film is not particularly it's not particularly well acted. It's not particularly well written. It's borderline incoherent. I mean, in what universe is this good? In the in the sense that when you're watching it, you're interested in what's happening. Well, I struggled after about halfway. Once they start reading his mind, I mean, the last bit I was interested in, without trying to sound salacious, is where they're trying to like arouse him and they show him it, and the first thing you see is a, a woman having a breast wash. <laughs> That's about the last bit of the film that engages me, not because of what it is, but because the story just loses all momentum after that, and it is completely batshit. Oh, it, it's off its rocker, yeah. It's got an eerie quality, a little bit like The Wicker Man. It's got like an, a little bit of an indie feel. It's got a little bit of a sort of, Jeff, obviously, Superman film because of Jeffrey Unsworth, the way it's shot. It's a very, very strange film. 
and it is one of those films that you can watch and understand all the way through and you're still going to go and read up on it afterwards just to be absolutely sure you hadn't lost your mind are you coming at this Owen from more of a visual point of view or a an ideas point of just view just everything about it I thought it was trying different things that you don't often see in films yes it was, it was very all over the place the story was I'm not going to say rushed rushed is the wrong word I think it it was very much from the heart from, from the writers and the maker and the director and the actors in it, perhaps not Sean Connery, but everyone seemed to be quite invested in what they were doing, which is nice to see, you know it's, it's Connery never looks like he's interested in anything to me I don't think I've ever seen him look like he's bothered about any film that he's done. He, sw- he switches off about four fifths of the way through Thunderball, and I think that was it for his career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Charlotte Rampling was good in this. I thought she she was very good. Yeah, absolutely. Most of that sort of society, that that bit of the sort of society, which are almost supposed to be a bit more unfeeling, actually act with an awful lot more passion. But I think I think that in a way though, that's that's almost the point to some extent, because Connery's character Zed is supposed to be a representation of just regressive, brutish humanity. So he, he acts on pure sort of brutish, beastly impulses, like when he grabs the breast of the, the vacant woman, like when they're all in that barn and they're just staring because they're apathetic. And he's just he basically just has a grope and then has sex with her or goes to have sex with her. He's just acting like a caveman. You know, so it's not much of a stretch for Connery, really. But like, it's the rest of them. They're like they are the classic sort of bored immortals. You know, so you've got people like John Alderton, who's always been a very good character actor. Who yes, you know, absolutely. he's great in this, and he ha- he has that sort of casual sort of casual rebellion in him, in that he wants to. He's not happy with the situation, but at the same time, he's not. You know, he needs Zed to help him change it. And then you've obviously got Charlotte Rampling, who's the very conservative. I think we need to keep things the way they are. Kind of push back against that. So it may, in a way, it kind of makes sense that they're the more animated. Yeah, but it pre- it presupposes they know how to be. Well, yeah, it does. But as I say, there's some interesting world building in this. I cannot believe it's only just over a hundred minutes. This does feel a very long film. Yeah, it does feel a lot more like three hours, doesn't it? Sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. My headline on this, if you like, is it's rubbish, but keep giving this guy money. That that's how I'd feel if I saw this at the time. Well, yeah, visually, I think it's it, it's memorable. You know, I mean, Jeffrey it, Unsworth. I, I was trying to think about what what is it about Jeffrey Unsworth that's so memorable, and it, it's lighting. It's all lighting. That's what's magic about Jeffrey Unsworth. I'm not sure any cinematographer lights as well as this guy. Jeffrey Unsworth has a way of making quite prosaic shots look beautiful. No, I, th- I think there's a lot of truth in that, and I think that with Zardoz, it has a sort of starkness to it as well, partly because of where it was filmed. It has a coldness that you, certain films of that era, like like you mentioned The Wicker Man, it's, it's very true, The Wicker Man is, was exactly the same. It has that sort of Simon stark... Running. Yeah, they have that sort of stark coldness to them, and that that is heavily towards the visual. There's loads of films in this era, and some of them work and some of them don't. Apocalypse Now is just the first one to mind, actually, and it's not actually the best example. But you think of sort of these, you know, these sci-fi experiments in the 70s, and some of them work and some of them don't. This one doesn't really work. It's going to be... This film's enduring legacy is going to be a still photo of Sean Connery standing heroically on a beach, dressed like, you know, a red nappy version of He-Man. Maybe you should have played He-Man. <laughs> that, would have, that would have made sense. The character did go on and spawn a, um, a comic book character, incident, incidentally, which was quite interesting. And Zed was the inspiration for a character called Vartox, 
who uh, appeared in DC Comics in 1974, so soon after Zardoz. He was uh, he was a character from Valerian, and I mention this because I've got to mention this. He was a character from a planet called Valerian in the Sombrero Hat Galaxy, and I'm not making that up. The Sombrero Galaxy is is actually a recognised galaxy in the uh, in the constellation Virgo. Did George Lucas name it? <laughs> well, look that up because it is it does exist. The Sombrero Galaxy. So yeah. It's it's a it's a memorable film, Zardas, and I think that it's worth checking out simply for the fact that it's you know it's a piece of, of its decade and it's a it's a it's a piece of sci-fi imagination that does say quite a few things under the surface, even if it's very flawed in its execution. Like you say, it's a daring failure, and I'm glad it exists. You know, even if it isn't always the easiest watch. I, I genuinely don't think you can completely understand seventy cinema. Or certainly American and British, you know, Western world cinema from the 70s. Without seeing it, because you've got to remember that the biggest franchise in the world at this point was still James Bond. That gets beaten in a few years when Star Wars comes along. It's certainly not the biggest franchise now. The biggest film star in the world. <laughs> Fading a little bit, but certainly at this point was Sean Connery. And he goes and does this little, you know, this, this, this the, the, you know, the 70s is almost about this hunt for, like, artistic credence. And sh- and this film really plays into that. And also, there's a lot of interesting sci-fi in the 70s. And an awful lot of it, you know, Logan's Run, Silent Running, THX 1138. A lot of them work really well. Mm. But then you look at this and some of the Planet of the Apes sequels and so on. And you- there is a flip side to it. And the 70s is a fascinating decade. And I think Zardoz is a really interesting part of that story, particularly as it was directed by such a celebrated director. Although he is a little bit of a one-hit wonder, if you ask me. I mean, to go from Deliverance, which is fantastic, to Zardoz and then Exorcist 2, The Heretic. He did He did do Exorcist 2. Oh, God, that was a terrible film, wasn't it? It was really bad, and, he, you know, Exorcist 3 is great, but he was nothing to do with that. Hang on a minute, you say one-hit wonder point-blank is on his resume. Point, okay, I'll give you a point blank, yep. <laughs> Two hit wonder. I would, I would also suggest, I'm mean, not suggesting it's a massive hit, but he also did Hope and Glory. And it's not a big hit, but it's a really good film. He did The Taylor of Panama as well. I think he's one of those, isn't he, John Borman, that he's, he's, he's never been, like, necessary. He's a filmmaker's or a film fan's director. Well, maybe, maybe nowadays. Maybe back then he was better known. But I think he's one of those critically acclaimed directors who never quite made that film, that one film that everyone just, you know, he never quite made an Apocalypse Now or he never quite made a Star Wars or a, you know, or a Bond or... or you Deliverance know. is as close as he gets. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's almost, that's almost infamous. It's it's still known for being very, you know, daring in, in, in what it does. But it's a shame, really, that he's not remembered for, for just the sheer inventiveness of, of Zardoz and the the fact that he he did have a certain vision for it. It's because the end result's quite hammy, and it also looks a little bit cheap. I mean, yeah. I'm talking about beautiful cinematography, and I mean that in its most literal sense, because there's no beautiful vistas in this or anything. It's just purely well-lit by a guy who knows what he's doing. But when I look at his filmography, and it's right in front of me now, literally, I genuinely believe, in, even including this in Deliverance, I think the best film we ever did is The Taylor of Panama. Well, that would be an interesting one for people to uh, explore if they want to know more about John Borman off the back of Zardoz. But yeah, do do give this a watch because it's, uh, it's an intriguing and unusual film. This was nominated by um, What the Craggers Saw, which is a, uh, a great name, At the Craggers, and he's a movie blogger 
proudly blocked <laughs> by somebody on uh, on on Twitter. Um, a burrito eater, husband, father of two, an amateur chef, grown up fanboy, therefore often an oxymoron. And the Kragas actually sent us a uh, a little quote about why he loves this film. He says, this is based on his review, uh, psychedelic, liberated, and casually explicit in a way only 70s sci-fi seems to be. Borman's modestly staged but visually dazzling film is a trippy Dr. Sayasian variation on The Wizard of Oz, which, as he says, is where the film takes its name and title character from. So, yeah, he's a huge fan of it. So thank you for that nomination, The Kragus. Really appreciate it. And definitely look Zardoz up. Yeah, you don't have to see Masters of the Universe. You have to see this. Yeah. <laughs> this is the one This is the one you're going to see. Okay, we're going to finish today with everyone's favourite part of Pick a Flick. It's question time. And uh, it's Owen's turn to be grilled on the uh, the eight questions today. Kind of looking forward to it. Kind of nervous. <laughs> and Dave, as ever, you can jump in if you know it. If you know the answers, the filming question today, Owen, is... It's Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead, yes. That's the 1985 sequel, isn't it, by George Romero? It's the third film, yeah, in the series. Yes, the third film, sorry. So why, why Is that Day point? Of the Dead? Do I get an early point? <laughs> no, sorry. Why Day of the Dead, then, Owen? Well, I've always liked uh, zombie films in general, and perhaps over the past six, six or seven years... Particularly the Romero movies have become some of my sort of instant favourites. Not just of like zombie movies, but just some of my favourite films of all time. Night of the Living Dead is groundbreaking, yes. But it's also, if you watch it as a zombie film, just flawless. It's flawless. Particularly uh, everything to do with the way the characters react and that there was no precedent at the time. I often flip between that as one of my favourite films and then also Dawn of the Dead. And then... Perhaps like this year only is when I've started to realise maybe Day of the Dead is possibly the best of the series. I don't know. Did yet. you start taking drugs this year? <laughs> I did become a student, but I, no, I haven't actually started. <laughs> drugs then yet. yes, is the answer. Um, but <laughs> but Day of the Dead. I know it's not quite the film that George A. Romero wanted for a whole host of reasons, mostly because of he didn't have the budget. But I just think that the ambition with it, there, there were lots of ways to interpret different scenes. I mean, I think I've watched it six times this year. And each time, there's different ways to look at different parts, particularly the way that the, the, the film ends. And I'm not going to say, I know it's an old film, but I hate spoilers, so I'm not going to say how it ends exactly. But I've always, I've just always assumed they'd run out of budget. There is that as well. They were running out of money. It was meant to be... Oh, I love that, because you run out of budget in a certain era, and people go, how artistic, and it's like, well, no, there's <laughs> fucking money left. Right, okay, Owen, are you ready for your eight questions on Day of the Dead? Yes, let's do it. Brill. Okay, let's go for it. Question one. What is the book that Dr. Logan gives to Bob? It is Paradise Lost. Dave, do you know this one? No, I don't. Unfortunately not, Owen. It's Salem's Lot. Because George Romero and Stephen King were good mates and remain good mates, I believe. Yeah, of course, yeah. We might have been good mates with Milton. We can't know. Well, yeah, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, good guess. Very educated guess. Okay, question two. Um, Now, there's a few options for this one. Question two. Name one of the other headlines from the paper seen in the film that declares the dead walk. So you've got four potential choices. I only need one. Uh, I don't know. I can't think of any. I I only know the dead walk. I was hoping that would come up. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I don't know. Pass. I'm going to have to pass. 
Okay. I can't help there either, so carry on. Okay, well, the choices would be Man Bites Man. <laughs> Vi- That's really good. <laughs> that is good. Yeah. Vice Vice President declares state of emergency, whereabouts of President unknown, and food supplies dwindle. So three relatively normal ones, then man bites man. Because I'm studying like journalism, at, like I said, I've just become a student. And one of the things that we were told is, you know, dog bites man is not headline, man bites dog is. Man right. bites man is, that's a cracking headline. I that's would have a, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you use that one. Yeah. Okay, question three. This is kind of tied into another film, but I'm cheating slightly. Question three. The alarm sound that can be heard in a certain scene is also in which other 1980s horror film the same sound? The alarm sound? Mm. Oh my god. I've just got to pick an 80s horror film, I guess. One with an alarm in it, we'd hope. Reanimator? No. no. It, that was a fairly tricky one, but I thought maybe the, the sound of the alarm might trigger a memory of another film. It was The Thing. Okay. There you go. That's a tricky one. Question four. What line did Joseph Pilato, aka Rhodes, ad lib as he's been ripped apart by zombies? Choke on him. Yeah! yeah well done. Qu- yeah. One down. One Choke point. on him. Yeah. Damn good line to go out in. Apparently, it's because those things actually really stank, and it was trying to oh. scream as loud as he could so he wouldn't vomit. Because <laughs> they were just they would reuse those like bits of uh, yeah, you know, livers and lungs. Yeah, because it was stuff. real, wasn't it? They were it real, real, real awful. Yeah, yeah. But they kept it in a fridge for like weeks, so it was just oh, rotting at that God. point. Oh, that's yeah. horrible. Mm. Okay, question five: What does Doctor Logan figure is the ratio of undead to human survivors? 400,000 to 1. Bingo, well mm. done. Yeah. I was wondering if you get that That's spot. That's amazing, well done. Yeah, it's another classic line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Question 6, speaking of lines. This is the only Romero film where a zombie speaks. What does Bob say? Hello, Aunt Alicia. Well done. Yes. It's rolling <laughs> off now. There we go, yeah. I had to think then. I was going to say Agatha, but it's Alicia. I know it's Alicia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you got that right. Who sang the love ballad, The World Inside Your Eyes, which appeared over the end credits? Oh my god, I should know this. I absolutely adore this soundtrack. I can't think who it is. It's got a funny name. Yeah, it's a, um... Ah, oh, bollocks. No, I'm going to have to pass. It's not our bollocks. It's not um, our bollocks. It's, <laughs> it's Spotsy Spacerino. Yes. Yeah, Spacerino. Yeah. I don't know what's the most appropriate way of saying that. Oh. Yeah, never mind. That's You know, yeah. everyone loves the Goblin soundtrack from... Dawn of the Dead, but Day of the Dead is cracking. It's properly good 80s horror. Oh, you can't go wrong. Question 8, finally. George Romero cameos in the film. Where and what is he? He's in the mine as a zombie, isn't he? Well, I've got here as a zombie. He's a zombie, so yeah, you're right there, okay? It's when they're all underground and the lorry and uh, who plays Sarah and the other guy, the radio guy they're running around underground right well I'm going to give you that because it doesn't mention underground here what, what it says what I've got up is as a zombie pushing a cart in the foreground during the final zombie feast seen from the waist down and identified by his trademark plaid scarf wrapped around his waist but I'm going to give you that because okay, you said he was you. a zombie yeah, so I you know. know yeah okay well done okay on, after eight questions you have scored four so you've you've hit the, the happy median there yeah shall we say. I'm okay with that yeah, I'm that's okay not bad. That. That's not bad. The questions weren't easy, but they weren't, like, hopefully too difficult. You're getting defensive now. The questions were awfully difficult. <laughs> <laughs> no, well done. Great stuff. Thank you. Okay, that brings us to the end of 
this latest edition of Pick a Flick. We have um, we have picked, we have flicked, and we have uh, hopefully enjoyed. So, only leaves me to thank my two guests. I appreciate you both coming on, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Dave, where can we find you online? Well, I take part in a podcast known as Do You Expect Us to Talk?, at the moment, it's a James Bond podcast, but it will continue on as a film retrospective of different series afterwards. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash expect us to talk. We are at expect us to talk on Twitter. And you can find me at the Pasty Kid 1976. As I've said many times, check out Dave's podcast. It's very, very entertaining. You've just released a couple of new episodes, haven't you, as well? Yes. Uh, at the time this comes out, I would expect us to be very close to releasing. We're doing them in order, and by now I would expect Man with a Golden Gun to be very close to release. Cool. Okay. Excellent. Owen, how about you? Okay, so I am on Failed Critics, which is failedcritics.com, at Failed Critics on Twitter, forward slash Failed Critics on Facebook. Very easy to remember. Um, we have a weekly film podcast or a podcast about films. Film podcast makes it seem very official. We're basically just a group of <laughs> people who just get together and chat about stuff that we. You should call really. yourself successful critics because I reckon more people would listen. To <laughs> Do you think that's our problem? <laughs> the name. I think so. Cause people I just don't get it. They're, they're obviously shit. Yeah. <laughs> What I'd like to plug is that we've just started our end-of-year awards voting, so if you've got a favourite film of the year or ten favourite films we would like to know about, just send them in. Go to the website, failcritics.com. It's on the front front page. Just click the link and uh, tell us what they are. Well, anything that was released in the UK in 2015 is eligible. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely check that out. The Fail Critics Awards are always good stuff, so, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully submitting something myself. Brilliant. Okay, you can find um, Pick a Flick obviously on Twitter at Pick a Flick Pod. Um, we're on Gmail at Pick a Flick Pod at Gmail And please do you know let us know what you think. We're on Facebook as well at Pick a Flick. Um, please let us know. Please message us. Look us up on iTunes as well uh, and give us a review, ideally five stars if you can. And um, indeed, thank you Owen for doing that because you're the only person so far who has. I thank you on a previous. Yeah, you are. You're, oh, you're on a previous podcast. I thanked you for this, but yeah, thank you in person um, for rating us up five stars. I didn't even have to pay you either. Brilliant. No, I know. Yeah, I'll I'll, exp- I'll invoice you now that I know it's something. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers for that. Yeah. And uh, we're also on Acast, who uh, are kind enough to host us, so do check us out. We're also, as well now, we've rebranded the website slightly, so we're now at bholemedia.com, so we can incorporate all the other podcasts, so Black Hole Cinema, and also my new venture, which starts this week coming, which is the Xcast, which is a brand new um, X-Files podcast, which is in time for the brand new series, which is coming out in January. So um, we've recorded the first two episodes of that, and I'm extremely excited to launch that. I've never seen an episode of the X-Files. Oh, well, Dave, perfect opportunity, right, listen to the podcast and watch along, okay, because then, you know, you'll get the full full experience. I have a massive I Want to Believe poster right behind me as we speak, so I am very much looking forward to the X-Cast. Amazing. Please take a picture of that and send us a picture and we'll put it, we'll put it on Twitter. Thank you, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to launching it, it's going to be great fun. So, um, thank you again, gentlemen. Thank you. Yeah, cheers, Tony. This was Pick a Flick, where... As ever, you pick them, we watch them. Simple. See you again. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.